Leviticus chapter 15, uh, verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, uh, When any man has a discharge from his body, his uh, discharge is unclean. And I'm just going to kind of skim through this uh, rather than go through every gory detail of what's here. In verse 4, you can see there it says, uh, every bed that he's on is unclean, uh, you know, continuing at the end, everything he sits on, uh, verse 5, whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening, uh, verse 7, he who touches uh, the body of a person who's been sick this way, uh, verse 8, uh, you know, he shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, uh, verse 9, any saddle on uh, which he rides uh, shall be unclean. Down in 10, he should wash his clothes and bathe in water, be unclean until evening. So, you know, this idea that when someone has a sore or a wound or, you know, we've come out of uh, the discussion of uh, the leprosy that's described in the previous chapter and, and the cleansing of the leper. So now for the nation of Israel and the camp of Israel, God is putting these sanitary conditions in place to say, you know, we, we need to promote health and make sure that if someone's sick in this way, that uh, we don't treat it in a flippant way. There's something very serious about the human body being sick and it needs to be tended to. We'll look at a couple spiritual applications. Uh, continuing in 15 at verse 13, uh, when he, you know, is cleansed, uh, he shall Count for himself seven days from his cleansing, wash his clothes, bathe his body in running water. Uh, then he shall be clean. On the eighth day, uh, he shall take for himself two turtle doves, two young or two young pigeons. Come before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and give them to the priests. And the priest shall offer them the one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement. For him before the Lord and the Lord because of his discharge. It's interesting to me as I was reading through chapter 15, praying about this, uh, maybe you're even thinking about it now. It was uh, Ignaz Semmelweis was the Hungarian who first instituted the idea that medical staff needed to wash their hands. Now, previous to that, uh, the practice was actually thought that the, the dirtier your doctor was, then the more reliable he was. If you came in and saw a doctor who was pristine, clean, white, pressed, uh, the thought was he doesn't have any patients. No, no one comes to him for help. If he was covered in blood and looking all gory, but then the thought of the day was, well, now there's a guy who's busy at the work of medicine, so I definitely want him as my doctor. You know, and, and what Ignaz recognized, you know, he wasn't even doing any studies under the microscope or anything like that. He just recognized the correlation literally between doctors going from autopsies on dead bodies to the death rate amongst the women that he was helping give birth to their children, right? From the mortuary, right into the birthing chamber, 
the children and the women were dying. And he was making this correlation between the death and what should have been life. And, and started the process of just cleaning. And then, you know, as a result, he was actually persecuted by the medical community, shunned, and had a great deal of uh, difficulty retaining his work. Think about this. That was 173 years ago, 1847, that that Hungarian brought that wisdom to us. How unfortunate is it that 3,400 years ago, the book of Leviticus was written? Oh, if we had only held to the wisdom of God's word and understood what the Lord was encouraging us to do. And you know, there's something very practical about that. You could look at something as gory as Leviticus 15 and think, you know, oh, I really would like to just turn the page and not be concerned with reading a thing such as this. And in the end, if we would apply ourselves to what's written in God's word, great benefit to us and to our society. Uh, chapter 15, verse 16 continues, speaks about even the emission of semen, uh, washing the body in water, a woman lying with a man intimately is discussed there. Uh, you know, discharge that she might have, uh, blood uh, for many days, and all that is required in order to cleanse her. Uh, this chapter 15, uh, being studied by two Christian physicians, uh, S.I. McMillan and David E. Stern, ended up doing an extensive study of what's described here in chapter 15 and compiling a book called None of These Diseases that if we were to just simply follow the practices of Leviticus chapter 15, how many diseases would not be in our culture and how many we would not personally experience. So there's a great deal of wisdom contained in here that if we were to read and apply ourselves to, we would find a great deal of health in the process. Now, there's a New Testament perspective on this that we should look at in James chapter 5, uh, looking at verse 14. It says, if anyone, is anyone among you sick, speaking to the believers, uh, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, symbol of the Holy Spirit in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven now every time I've shared that with unbelievers they immediately make the point of well you know you're saying that if someone will do this they'll be healed and that's not actually what I'm saying nor is it what the scripture is saying Read uh, the last of that again. The prayer of faith will save the sick, right? We're talking about literal salvation, not health. And the Lord will raise him up. Uh, how encouraging is it when a brother or a sister will pray for us, read the scripture to us, you know, lift us up before the Lord? We may not be healed in the process. Something else I want to point out is, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. That means we, 
as the, as the sick need to be the ones that reach out. So very often, what I have experienced is that the person who is sick has the mentality that the church should be seeking them out. And, and I get that. We, we have that injured, hurt, sick feeling and desire of need. But in the end, you know, we're not supernatural. We, we are as sinful as anyone else. We are as selfish as anyone else. We might not know that someone is in need. You know, and if they are in need, the fact that they haven't reached, maybe they don't want people to be around, to come to them. It needs to be that the person who's in need has the humility that they would reach out and say, I'm in need, can someone come to me? And then with that, the elders, plural, of the church, not the pastor or the elder of the church. It should be a collection of people that come and pray over this person. This is significant because in the church today, there's very much a mentality that there are specific people who have specific power. And in the end, none of us has any power. It's the Lord who has the power, and we're all inquiring of the Lord. So if the elders collectively are praying, and then the Lord answers for that person, then no one person gets credit. The Lord is the one who gets the credit for helping us be humble enough to reach out for help, for the leadership within the church to be responsive enough to come and care for a person, and then the Lord's power working in their life to raise them up and care for them. This idea that everyone should be healed is not biblical. I think we know that by now. We've looked at Paul enough times. I'll remind us again of what 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 7 says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Uh, Paul, uh, abundance of revelation, you know, a great deal. One third of the New Testament written by Paul, a little more than one third of the New Testament written by Paul. Uh, most of our Christian doctrine is founded in the writings of Paul. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of his behavior and example that the church follows today as our practical practices. But in the end, the Lord was saying, you're just a human being. I can't have the church looking up to you more than they look up to me. So the abundance of revelation that Paul had that he recorded and handed down to us, the Lord allowed for him to have what he called a thorn in the flesh. Uh, the, the literal word we talked about many times is a tent stake. And I've pointed out that that's not your little, you know, Boy Scout metal plastic tent stake that you would hold the pup tent to the ground. This is, you know, somewhere around 18 inches to three feet long wooden stake that would be driven in the ground to hold down the Bedouin tents that were the home for an entire family. Paul is saying, I have something driven through my flesh that I suffer from all of the time that buffets me 
you know, as a messenger from Satan. So it isn't, you know, from the Lord as much as it is the Lord is allowing his enemy to have this effect upon him so that he'll be humble. So that he'll have to rely upon the Lord. You know, he's asked the Lord several times concerning the thing I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Any of us that have to deal with chronic illness you know, chronic maladies know how you have to continuously rely upon the Lord. You know, you know, I, it always bothers me to see somebody who's of perfect health and stature acting like if we were all just as spiritual as them, we could have, you know, the good health that they do. You know, God bless them for having the good health that they do. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, but, you know, apparently the Lord saw fit in my life and many of us in this room that we're going to suffer through some stuff and have to rely upon him, not even just day to day, but moment to moment many times. That'll draw you close to the Lord. You know, you don't think so? Read the writings of the likes of, you know, Johnny Erickson or many others who've had to go from the place of perfect, you know, teenage health in her case, to, you know, quadriplegic, waiting upon the Lord every single day, every single moment. Great example of faith. So, you know, we have the New Testament examples of uh, health and how to rely upon the Lord in those circumstances. In chapter 16, before we begin uh, looking at the chapter, I'll remind us of Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 16, where it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. And then most importantly, verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Uh, we're going to see in chapter 16 many things that are reflective of Jesus and his ministry and uh, what we should be looking at. But in the end, it's Jesus and his fulfillment that we really need to pay attention to. So Leviticus 16, verse 1 says, now the, or, excuse me, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had offered profane fire before the Lord and died. So Nadab and Abihu, and that occasion where they were supposed to have brought uh, the incense in before the Lord. They were supposed to have taken uh, coals from off the altar and put the incense upon it. And that is how the incense would have been burned. Instead, it says they took profane fire. We kind of assume that, you know, they just took it off from their campfire or some other location. It wasn't, uh, you know, that the, the, the uh, incense was not lit on fire, kindled by the flames which came off from the altar. So uh, they had disobeyed the Lord in that Moses, uh, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. 
So when the priest went into the Holy of Holies, uh, it was two times in uh, one day, uh, that occasion uh, on Yom Kippur, when they were bringing in the atonement for uh, the whole nation of Israel, he couldn't just do that whenever he wanted to. Had to be at the prescribed time. And, and you know, the tendency, the temptation is uh, to perform our religion however we want to, you know, whatever we're comfortable with. And you hear people say that. You find something in the scripture that uh, clearly forbids certain behavior or practices. And, you know, Christians today will act like, well, I'm not bothered by it. Well, yes, but right here in the scripture, it's clearly defined as something we should not participate in. Yes, but it doesn't bother me. Well, that's not up to us. Uh, we need to look at what the scripture says and be obedient to that. So, continuing in verse 3, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. So he's going to get specific about how these are to be offered. But the idea of the simple clothing of the priest, not the ornate beauty of of the priestly robes, but the linen that he's supposed to be wearing. Um, within that, the Lord even specifically says that the linen that he's supposed to wear is so that there's no sweat. Okay? That the work that is to be done within the ministry of the priest shouldn't be from human labor. It shouldn't be by the sweat of the brow as uh, the curse that was pronounced in Genesis upon the human race, that by the sweat of their brow we would you know, accomplish our necessary things, our food and what we could till from the ground. Here, the priest is not supposed to have any labor involved in what it is that he's doing, you know. I've experienced myself the strains of ministry and had to remind myself what I've been taught as I've come up through the ministry. You know, as pastors, ministers, workers in the ministry, if we're experiencing what is so often called burnout, then you need to really examine what the fuel and the motivation for your ministry is. Because it's only going to be the flesh that burns out. If we're in fact fueled by the Holy Spirit, uh, then you're not going to have that diminishing or that ending of the strength. And so when we find ourselves in that place, we need to examine what it is that's actually our motivation. 16 verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make Atonement for himself and for his house. Now, uh, that probably actually means the Levites, not just himself, right? His house, his family is the tribe of Levi. 
uh, within that, you know, offering this bull, that's a, that's a large sacrifice given before the Lord. Uh, the thing that I recognize within that is how sinful priests are. I'm not giving them or us any excuse who are in leadership or the work of the ministry. Uh, very often, you know, people will say things along the lines of, you know, oh, well, you know, doing such and such would make you unworthy of the ministry. Well, guess what? <laughs> there's, there's no point for any minister where he can say, well, there, now I'm worthy. We don't bring ourselves to a place of completion and perfection where we can step into the pulpit and act like I'm deserving of standing here and delivering the message of God's word. You know, this priest is a sinful man. This pastor standing in front of you struggles with the same things you do. Uh, the Lord has just given me certain qualities that I can stand up here in front of a group of people and deliver a message. Uh, this is what the Lord has called me to. This is what the Lord has called Aaron to. And when he comes before the Lord, he has to remember how grave his failures are. A bull is going to have to die in order to cover his and his family's sins. You know, if it was just a turtle dove, some small animal, something that you could send a child out to catch, retrieve, bring back, and butcher, and offer to the Lord, maybe he wouldn't have the gravity of what's going on. All of the other sacrifices performed throughout the year, uh, those were to be done by the priests who served under him. This one, this man's going to have to handle himself. You know, I'll tell you what, you step up beside a bull and you're going to put a blade through his neck, you better be seriously committed to what you're about to do because that animal's not just going to submit to that. There's a serious process in what you're about to engage in. Uh, your sin, right? Now, now think about that picture, right? That tells you, that tells you, as far as Aaron dying to himself, that bull is the picture of himself. That bull standing there is like his flesh not wanting to die. You guys remember Ray Torrey came here and spoke a couple of years ago, my friend from Seneca Falls, New York. I heard Ray speak at a pastor's conference years ago about the suffering of Christ and the fellowship that we have as ministers in, in the suffering of Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. And so Ray's message was all about dying to yourself. And he completed his message by saying, dying to myself, as far as my list of things to do in life, dying to myself is dead last. And I mean, it's just kind of silly, but in the end, there's an absolute truth to that. We don't want to give up that which is us. We don't want to give up of ourselves. And neither is that bull going to stand there and just submit to its own slaying without some kind of protest. And that, that for a priest is the image of his own dying in order to serve the Lord. For a pastor, for any minister, um, you can apply that all along the way. You know, we're called to die to ourselves daily, take up our cross and die to ourselves daily. 
You know, I say to young people who are about to get married, what's your image of marriage? What are you thinking that getting married is all about? And you'll get a long you know, list of answers. And then I inform them in the end of that that what marriage is all about is dying to yourself. You know, it's amazing to me the number of young people who get married and then come back in a short period of time and say, this stinks. <laughs> right. Because for however long you've lived life, you haven't had to consider anyone else to the degree you now have to inside marriage. Service to another. Priest. Service to an entire nation. There's a whole lot of dying that's got to go on in that. So he's to bring this bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Make atonement for himself and for his house. Verse 7 he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Now, before you get scapegoat uh, mixed up, okay, our definition of scapegoat today has actually become reversed. Okay? The scapegoat today is someone that you put the blame on so that you can get away with whatever it is you're trying to get. That person is the scapegoat. Okay, In this case, it's the exact opposite. The scapegoat is the one who escapes. The scapegoat is the one who gets set free. Uh, the, the sin goes upon the other. The sacrifice goes upon the other. So here, the lot for the scapegoat, Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it. And it shall go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. Look, we, we are the scapegoat. Jesus was the sacrifice. Right? He took the brunt and the punishment and his blood was shed upon us and we were allowed to escape the punishment of our sin. Aaron shall bring the bull and the sin of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. Shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hand full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. This is uh, an image of what Nadab and Abihu should have done. And again, if you've ever had, you know, the little stick of incense or, you know, one of those little cones and lit it on fire and blown it out and let it just smolder, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about take the incense, crush it fine. So it's almost like powder, raging plate of coals, Take a mound of that and just toss the whole amount on top. That's just going to erupt into a cloud of smoke filling the air and the atmosphere. There isn't going to be a slow burning sort of sweet smell. It's going to be a matter of almost creating you know, a smoke screen, which is what's intended. The idea is that as they go before the Lord, there would be a shroud you know, something that obscured the vision from seeing directly the Lord. It's symbolic of prayers of the saints. We see in the book of Revelation in heaven before the throne of the Lord that 
the prayers of the saints ascend before the Lord like the incense or with the incense, it can even be implied. So here, he's to bring it inside the veil. He should put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. Now, again, the mercy seat is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's so significant to me that the lid on the Ark of the Covenant is not known as the judgment seat, right? It's not the wrathful seat. It's the mercy seat, the place where you're going to meet the Lord as the priest of God is where his mercy resides. And within that, this cloud of incense, this smoke is supposed to shroud that cloud from the vision of the priest. He can see it, but not with that distinct clarity. There's going to be this shroud of smoke there. And then that statement, lest he die. Because the illumination, think about this, the only illumination inside this room, right? thick, dense curtains closed off, that's the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is what illuminates this location. So the cloud of incense is in order to prevent the priest from seeing directly the presence of the Lord. He should take some of the blood of the bull, sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Got to go in there with the sacrifice of blood before the Lord. Then he shall kill the goat. So now separate offering, the bull, the blood on and before the mercy seat. Now the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil. Do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull. So this is what I mean by twice a year. In the same moments, blood of the bull, and then now sacrifice of the goat, now blood of the goat. So on the same occasion, but two separate entrances, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions uh, for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So, you know, sanctifying uh, and offering for even the tabernacle because they're an unholy people. Even, you know, even in this relationship and these um, articles of worship that they're given, they're not perfect. Uh, they haven't been made, you know, without sin. This is to cover and wash away their sin because of their transgressions and for all their sins. So he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement for the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord. So you have the altar of incense, 
which is inside the tabernacle where the incense is to be burned before the Lord. The altar of sacrifice is outside the tabernacle where these uh, offerings are to be burned there. So you know, he's to take this outside. Um, sorry, uh, lost my place there. 18, he shall go out, of the ta the out to the altar, thank you, that is before the Lord, and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Remembering that the number seven does not in fact mean perfection, it simply means completion, that a thing is finished. 16 verse 20, and when he had made an end of atoning uh, for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them, the sins and transgressions, on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. This is the clearest moment that we have where uh, we've seen several times the Lord describing them putting their hands on the head of the sacrifice. This is the clearest moment we have in the scripture where it's described that he shall make confession, thereby symbolically transferring the guilt from the human being to the animal that the sin will be upon the head of the goat, and uh, then it will be released. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. So a suitable man will take this goat and set it free. It's going to be released out into the wilderness. Again, I just want to clarify that the scapegoat, in its original definition, and what we're talking about here is the one that escapes. Okay, It isn't the one who gets the guilt put upon it that it absorbs the punishment. It's interesting because here Aaron does put the guilt upon it. But it's the one who paid the price who took the brunt for the sins of Israel. It's an interesting picture to me, right? We have to admit our sin before the Lord, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Aaron placing the guilt upon this goat here, the one who actually has absorbed the punishment has already been sacrificed and the blood has been taken into the mercy seat before the Lord. So we have to be honest in the fact that, you know, we are the ones that are guilty, even though we've been set free, right? We're the ones that are guilty. The one who took our punishment, he was the innocent one. 16.23, Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there, and shall wash his body with water in, the whole, in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer a burnt offering and a burnt offering 
for uh, of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. He who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. The bull of the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh and their offal. Then he shall burn them. Shall Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp, outside the camp, right? Jesus Christ was taken outside the city and sacrificed. Uh, his his uh, shed blood was on the hill of Calvary, not uh, within the temple grounds. They had plenty of opportunity to do that. Uh, you know, you think, well, you know, they wouldn't have wanted to do such a thing. They stoned Stephen to death inside the, the city. You know, they were preparing to kill Paul inside the city. They had attacked him in the temple and dragged him outside, and the Romans come and carry him off to the Antonio Fortress. So <laughs> killing, you know, someone that they hated uh, was, you know, inside the city limits. That wasn't, you know, outside their mandate. Jesus Christ was specifically taken outside the city and killed. Uh, that's why all of these sacrifices imaged here uh, are taken outside the city in this way to fulfill what Jesus Christ was going to fulfill through his sacrifice. This shall be a statute, uh, Leviticus 16:29, forever for you uh, in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, uh, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your uh, own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. And I just want to clarify again, a Sabbath is a holy day. That, that's simply what it means. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about a Saturday for the Jews. They would, they might have, you know, Sabbath throughout the week, an entire week, as they celebrate, uh, you know, one of the festivals, and then also the Saturday that takes place for them. I, I bring it up because uh, they were preparing uh, for the Passover that Sabbath when Jesus was crucified, and then there was also the Saturday of the Sabbath that same week. Um, so people get confused. Uh, we're you know approaching uh, Easter. People get confused about Good Friday or is it Good Wednesday or it might have been Good Thursday. You know, there's any number of things along the way. There were two Sabbaths that took place on that way on that week. So here it is a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. The priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest. In his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen garments, the holy garments. So Yom Kippur uh, is what we're talking about. This year, uh, 2020, uh, it begins on sunset, uh, Sunday, September 27th, and it will end at nightfall, Monday, September 28th. So it's usually 
the end of September or early October because they're running according to the Jewish religious calendar when they mark that. The question often comes up amongst the religious there, you know, what do you do about Yom Kippur? There's no sacrifice that is to be made. So people actually take advantage of the Jews during this time of year because they use it as a time of reflection where they think about all of the bad things that they've done throughout the year, the sin that needs to be covered. And how do they cover it today? They cover it with good deeds. So they have to do good things to outweigh the bad things. So literally, uh, Gentiles will take advantage of Jews during this period of time because they know the Jews are trying to find ways to do good things to cover up for the bad things that they've done. So ask your Jewish neighbor to mow your grass, wash your dog, take care, you know, or whatever. It's, it's, it's really, you know, sinful that people do this on both sides of things, right? Because in the end, there's nothing we can do to cover our sins. It needs to be the sacrifice that's made. You know, our Jewish friends, unfortunately, miss the point altogether. So this is to make atonement and put on the linen garments or the linen clothes, the holy garments. In verse 3, continuing, then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly this shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel and all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. It's pretty complex when you examine everything that's required and what you would have to do to follow all of those rules. Again, symbols of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says there on the cross, what? It is finished. Right, So even Yom Kippur, the, the, the Day of Atonement, is finished in Jesus, by Jesus. So it's, it's statute forever in that his sacrifice once and for all covers eternity. We, we don't have to be concerned about trying to accomplish this for ourselves. You might want to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 16. The author of Hebrews says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Right? We don't do that. We'll say, you know, I'm supposed to forgive, you know, my brother 70 times 7. And, uh, you know, he comes and says, I've sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? And we say, okay, I'm a Christian. I'll do that. And then he's back tomorrow saying, I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And you say, fine. And then next week and next month and next year. And we usually get to the point where we, you know, say things like, that's enough. <laughs> Come on. I've just, you know, I've forgiven you all these times. And really what we're confessing is I've never forgiven you. Because if I've forgiven you all those times, if you've forgiven me all those previous times, then when I come to you in that repetitive way, you know, I'll tell you where this happens. You think for a split second before I say it, you already know. Marriages, you've lived with somebody for years, and you just finally get to the place where you're like, this is who you are. This is how you are. 
Yeah, right. That's why I need you to forgive me. That's why I need to forgive you. Mercy, right? Mercy is how this works. You know, here the Lord is saying, you know, your lawless deeds, I'll remember no more. Zero. No, it doesn't work for you. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Have you done it again? Does he say to you, no, can't do it. I've already forgiven you for that, and now you're back here at my altar asking for forgiveness. When we show up the next time and say, Lord, I'm a wretch, forgive me. He says, what are you talking about? He has no remembrance, right? He's cleansed us perfectly. You might want to adopt that attitude. You might want to consider whether you have adopted that attitude. The constant grace, right? The constant forgiveness. The constant mercy that is our Lord. Uh, think about that. Uh, continuing in Hebrews chapter 10, looking at verse 18. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. All people have warped that to say if you've been forgiven, and they also take other passages from Hebrews and say, therefore there is no more sacrifice for these sins. No, the point is you don't have to go back to the bull and the goat. There's one sacrifice. It is Jesus. He is the one who has taken away these things. You can't do anything of sacrificial behavior in order to cleanse that. Christ alone. There's no other sacrifice that can be made. You know, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That place where the priest went two times once a year, that's where we get to enter. You know, we get to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are the priesthood. We have been sprinkled with that blood. The mercy seat sprinkled with the blood, of that sacrifice before the mercy seat sprinkled, we have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansed, washed in the water, right, of baptism through his blood into the presence of the Lord. Beautiful thing that the Lord has provided for us. We got about eight minutes. We can accomplish chapter 17. Ready? Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, to all the children of Israel and say to them, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, note that, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the tabernacle of meeting, to the priests 
and offer them as a peace offering to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. They shall be this shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And this is not talking about hunting. This is not talking about butchering an animal. This is talking about worship. You're going to bring worship. It needs to come before the Lord. If you're going to do it outside the prescribed method that the Lord has put in his word, then it's going to be considered some form of idolatry, something demonic. Uh, which you, was usually the reason that they didn't bring it before the Lord. They, they were performing some idolatrous practice outside of the tabernacle, outside of the city limits. And the Lord is saying that will not be allowed anymore. Now that we've established the tabernacle where the people are to worship, you're to obey the mandates and bring those sacrifices before the Lord. 17 verse 8. Also, you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of the meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from amongst his people. There's some debate about what's meant by cut off. That could literally mean be put to death. It at least definitely means excommunicated from the culture. If you're going to be a person in the midst of Israel where everyone's supposed to be worshiping the Lord that's going to rebel this boldly and perform sacrifices to other gods away from the tabernacle, you're going to be cut off from the nation of Israel. Can't have anything to do with them. So we can't worship God and other things at the same time. Our master passion must be for Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke of this gave us a clear understanding. You can apply it wherever you want to. He was speaking of money, specifically using the God of money and power, mammon, when he said in Matthew chapter 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's the master passion I was talking about. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole, whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then Jesus makes that closing statement. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and any other thing in life. It has to be that our motivation in all things is Jesus Christ. That's the thing that drives us. Leviticus chapter 17, looking at verse 10. Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwells among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Remember that statement. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. 
for it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. So this is the pagan practice of idolatrous worship. Their thought was that in consuming the blood of an animal, they would take on its strengths and its attributes. It was a pagan idolatrous practice. Uh, it is, is not something that the Lord is saying about uh, how we eat our food. This is a matter of them participating in idolatry, and the Lord is forbidding that. It's forbidden in the Old Testament, and it's forbidden in the New Testament. It's a great debate amongst the leaders of the church, and in Acts chapter 15, they address it specifically, along with a host of other things. But in Acts chapter 15, at verse 28, it says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled. That's all one thing. Idolatry, blood, and from things strangled. They strangled the animals so that the blood didn't drain out. And then they consumed the meat with the blood intact. No draining of the blood at all. It was, it was an act of idolatrous worship, again, to absorb the life of the animal, the attributes, you know, the, the strength of the deer, the flight of the bird would be consumed by them, was their thought. Very pagan in its origin, and the apostles were saying to the Gentile people who had become Christians, you need to stop this idolatrous practice. You know, so let me just give you some re relief here. A rare steak is okay to eat. There's, there's nothing biblically wrong with that at all. You know, the, the Jewish people have taken this so far that they drain the animal for so many hours or so many days, and then when they cook it, they boil the meat first, and then if they're going to fry it, they'll fry it after that. I mean, I don't know how you create boot leather any better than that, but you know, I just you've ruined my steak if you've gone through all of that in the process. You know, the blood definitely needs to be drained out for health purposes. But what's being described here doesn't have anything to do with meat preparation as much as it has to do with spiritual preparation. You can't be engaged in idolatry in this manner. The Lord forbids it. Verse 13 of Leviticus chapter 17, we'll get through these last couple of sections. Whatever man of the children of Israel or the strangers dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So sanitary conditions, drain the blood out of that thing and bury it so that it's not affecting or infecting anyone else. Every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. 
then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. Uh, so, you know, the idea that, you know, if you find a, a nice deer of roadkill, you know, and you can recover, you know, some of it that's okay, it's okay to eat that. It's, it's not a forbidden thing is what the Lord is saying. You know, in this day, I would have a hard time if you just stumbled upon, you know, a deer or a cow that was dead and thought, well, gee, free meat. Um, not so much. But they had the practice that if, you know, you're going to eat that, you could, but you're going to be unclean until evening. Why until evening? Well, you're just going to watch and see if that person gets sick, right? You just, I mean, cow keeled over and, uh, you know, you were hoping to harvest that thing at some point and you made the decision of, well, you know, we went this far with the thing. We'll just go ahead and eat it anyway. <clears throat> You know, everybody's going to sort of sit around and watch and wait and see. Are you going to keel over also? No? Okay. Well, then the day is past. You're okay in the process. So very practical things that the Lord gives the nation of Israel <coughs> physically and spiritually. So three chapters. We'll pick up at chapter 18 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. So you can go home and worry about... <coughs> infectious discharges and you know uh, all kinds of you know glorious things throughout the remainder of the week and uh, let the Lord minister to you father I thank you uh, I thank you for the scapegoat thank you that we are the scapegoat that you have given us the blood of your son's sacrifice that would give us clear entrance into your holy of holies your presence we're here this morning in your presence by the promise of your word. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be aligned with you, that we would find ourselves submitted to you and your will. Give us the strength of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.